Welcome to this episode of Superhero Ethics. My name is Matthew, and today I'm joined by uh, two great guests, Jess Plummer and Becky Allen, as we're discussing the TV show Shira. We're talking about why we love this show so much and what makes it so important. We're talking about a lot of the different characters and the arcs they go on, and we're asking, just how hard do you have to work in this universe to not get a redemption arc? All that and more after this commercial break we have no control over. Welcome back. Um, as I said, I'm Matthew, and I'm joined today by uh, two great guests, people who have been uh, really important uh, parts of this podcast. They've both been guests before, and as I've mentioned a couple times, um, I got to hear both of them speak uh, at a fantastic conference called WISCON, uh, one that is was supposed to be this coming weekend. It still is happening online, but uh, for obvious reasons, it's not happening in person. Um, and funny enough, the, uh, I know the two of you are, are great friends. I've had each of you on numerous times, um, but this is the first time I've had you both on together, so... Uh, it's great to have you both on to be talking about Shira today. Um, how are you guys doing today? Pretty good. Thanks for having us. Yeah. yeah, I'm I'm really excited to talk about this. It's the first time I think I've been on to talk about something other than Star Wars. Um, <laughs> Very true. But you know me, I love I love a show in space. So this yeah. is thematically just fine. <laughs> well, and also, yeah. I mean, kind of like Star Wars, it does bridge that like, is it fantasy? Is it sci-fi thing pretty well? Um, and there is one particular shot that I think was a direct reference to Star Wars that we'll discuss. But um, um, obviously, that won't be our main focus. Um, uh, and we're talking about the TV show Shiro, which I have really loved. And uh, the newest season just came out on Netflix. It felt to me like a final season. I don't, I don't know if that's official yet, but certainly that's how it felt to me. Um, but either way, it's a great time to be talking about it. And I will say uh, at the top, for anyone who hasn't seen it yet, we will be spoiling everything that has been that has happened on the TV show Shira so far, all five seasons. Um, if you haven't seen it yet and you want to, um, definitely hit pause. This episode will be waiting for you until you finish the show. If you haven't seen it, I, I would greatly suggest take, uh, taking, uh, taking a look at it. But if not, if you want to just hear it, hear people talk about it and why, why we love it so much and, and what are the questions it raises, uh, you know, kind of keep on listening. So let me just start with that. Um, what's your kind of overall take on this show about why... Uh, I know I know both of you are really big fans. What what do you like about this show and what makes it um one that uh you think of as important and uh, uh and just really good? Um, I mean, go for it. <laughs> so, um I grew up on Sailor Moon, which was my very first fandom when I was in middle school. Um and so I have always been a big fan of the magical girl genre and specifically of look of at this group of girls who are friends and who are powerful and who can defeat the bad guys with love and kindness and caring towards one another. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what Shira is also, uh, like all of those things. So it's it's very much like, for me, it feels like something that I grew up on, uh, but is able to be much more blatantly about that uh, and much more blatantly queer. And I just, I really, I really enjoy what's at the core of the show, I think, and I also really enjoy the space-slash-fantasy aesthetic, um, and I love all of the characters. So, everything. I Everything is what makes it good. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a beautifully, like, just a beautifully done show. It's brilliantly written. It's gorgeously animated. It's got, it, it's just, it's, it's such a pleasure to experience, like, visually and 
auditorially it's it's so rich um Mm -hmm. and yeah everything that becky said i mean it is it's sort of the original she-ra show it was created to sell toys um and is pandering in sort of the worst ways like no offense to those who grew up on the original show which is a little bit before my time but it was sort of a soulless endeavor and Mm -hmm. The thing about this show is it sort of takes uh, the commercialization of media for little girls and turns it into a rich celebration of all the things that girls can be um, yeah. and that and that people that everybody can be because certainly uh, the show plays a lot with gender. Um, but, you know, even the idea of like, here's a bunch of princesses, but they're not just action figures. They're not just dolls. They're complex characters and they draw their strength from being magical princesses. And like the, the body diversity on the show, the racial diversity, the gender and sexuality diversity, like it's just, it's just great. It's a good show. Yeah. So good. <laughs> Yeah, I, I have a number of uh, – one, one thing I, I always bring to kind of – because, I mean, this is meant as a kid's show. And one of the kind of rubrics that I always bring to those shows is, is this one that can both have, you know, be very enjoyable to kids um, and have, you know, good messages for kids, but also that the parents aren't kind of like, you know, gnashing at their teeth, glad their kids are watching something, but it's painful for them, you know. Um, I, I spent enough years uh, babysitting people who watched Barney and Thomas the Tank Engine to have a lot of sympathy for that perspective. <laughs> Yep. Um, and it's, it's interesting to me how many parents I know who absolutely love this show, both because they think it's great for their kids, but, but well, it's three things I think what I hear a lot is that they, it's great for the kids. They find it very entertaining as well. I mean, I think uh, if I'm correct, no, none of the three of us have any kids and we all love the show, but also that, it, that I've heard from so many parents that it leads to great conversations between kids and parents because it, there's so many different ways to see yourself in in the huge range of characters who as you said i think are diverse in so many different ways yeah i mean i think i i to me there are kids shows and there are all ages shows and this is an all ages show which is not the same i mean it's like a you know a good disney movie like anybody can watch beauty and the beast that's not for children it's for everyone um yeah. and i think that shira is definitely among other shows like um Avatar The Last Airbender or like really clever, smart shows that are not only entertaining to kids, but they take complex questions and they make them accessible to kids, but they don't dumb anything down. It's about making it understandable to everyone and not sort of underestimating an audience just because children are part of the audience. Yeah, I, I think it's a really good way of putting it, um, especially because for me, um, th- that the bar has always been set for me of, of the Muppet Show, um, one that you know I I could love so much as a kid, and then go back as an adult and feel like I caught so much, but but that at all ages there was so much that I was gaining out of it. Now you know, very funny, but also some really good messages and things like that. And um, I I like the description of all ages. I think it's a good way of, uh, of talking about this. Well, and we talked about representation especially, and I don't want to get too far into this um, because I know a lot of great writing has been done in other places, but especially as I've heard both of you talk about um, the the frustration you sometimes have with the lack of um, diversity in characters, especially in issues of both gender and queerness. Um, 
talk a little bit about what it is about this show that makes it so 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 different than everything else that's out there and why that matters so much. I mean, I think it's really telling that uh, in season four, they introduce a character who's voiced by Gina Davis, who literally has a whole, I think it's like a nonprofit. She has this whole endeavor to bring more gender diversity and better balance to children's media and pointing out how like, if you, you know, look at the top selling picture books, like the top 100. Oh, you're pictures. talking about Gina Davis. For me, I thought you were talking about the character and I was getting very confused. But yeah, okay, <laughs> go on. Uh, yes, Gina Davis, the real human being, um, right. who has talked about um, and has like, literally they have done studies to show that if you look at, you know, as I was saying, picture books or uh, kids media, especially for preschoolers, it's like maybe one out of 10 or one out of 20 of the characters are female. And we're talking about like, you know, books about like living crayons or dump trucks or whatever. Like they're, they're not gendered objects, but it's, they're all very clearly male. Um, right. And she appears on this show because this show is everything that she has been trying to, to fight for. I mean, I don't know. I don't know what's going on in her head, but I'm assuming that like she was happy to be on the show because this is something that she feels really strongly about. Um, and the thing about Shira that's really striking, like not only are almost all, there's like two major male characters, three, if you count Hordak or Horde Prime, like they're almost all the main characters are female. But when you look at the crowd scenes or when they have like a one-off, like, just like a random thug that they have to get past to get into uh, somewhere or even the characters are female when there is no reason for them to be female, except for the fact that women exist. Right. It's exploding the whole idea of male as the default and, Oh, this character should be a woman. So it's not the default. Yeah. I mean, I think it's pretty clear that, that, uh, female is the default for this show and you have to make a really solid case for a character to be male. Um, and yes. this char- this show also has characters who are neither of those things, which is incredible. Yeah, so uh, how much do you want to hear about uh, my gender? <laughs> I, I think um, as much as you want to disclose, uh, you're utterly welcome to do so. I, I'm going to be talking, um, at a later point in the show, I'm going to be talking quite a lot about my own mental illness because it's very relevant. So whatever you want to talk about, go for so, it. So I am uh, non-binary and I am somebody who has been coming to that realization like it was sort of a long time coming thing. And then in the last year and a half or so, it, it became much clearer uh, to me. Um, when So in the first season of Shira, there is an episode called Princess Prom, which is amazing. Um, And one thing that really struck me about it uh, that may or may not have made me cry a little to myself um, is that Catra, who is one of the show's antagonists, and we're going to talk so much about her, she's not a princess, but she's there with a princess, uh, shows up wearing a really rad suit. And... Like there's there's nothing in the show that it ever states or assumes that Katra is anything other than female or identifies as anything other than female. But as somebody who who was you know assigned female at birth, I'm fine with she her pronouns. I'm fine with they them pronouns. You know, it's but even so, seeing somebody who is 
red as female who shows up in this all ages show wearing a suit looking dapper as hell uh and that's just an okay way to be and it's like yeah of course that's what she would wear that completely suits her personality and everything we know about how she views herself um that was the first time i kind of felt permission to start presenting myself in a way Mm. that was less female coded and like i've never been particularly femme like that's you know it's not like i was like oh i can stop wearing dresses because i had never really worn dresses but it was the first time i started thinking like oh i could buy a suit uh (laughs) um i like Seeing seeing it was so important and meaningful to me, and I say that as an adult human who has, you know, had a long time to to process gender and come to terms with gender and, and figure out who I am and who I want to be, and it still struck me as something that was incredible and powerful and very important to me, and I literally have um, a picture of Katra that actually Jess got for me in her suit hanging up on my wall above my desk. So like, it's something which, just in terms of sheer representation and things we don't see that much of in any media, but in this case, particularly um, media that is all ages, but look considered strongly to be for children. um, it, It was incredibly powerful and meaningful to me. So I think, yeah, that, and I, I am not the only person who's going to come to this show and have an experience like that because it is such an inclusive cast and they do have such a a variety of different body shapes and different skin tones and different personalities and different gender presentations and different sexualities. Like there's so much there that I feel like it's a show where a lot of people of all ages can come to it and have a sudden feeling of, oh, this is reflecting something within me that is important. And that makes it a really important show. And, and I love I love that you specifically brought that up because I'll admit, and granted, this is a much smaller character, but for myself, as I, I identify as, as somewhere in a male, demi-male, non-binary sense myself, um, and I had kind of a similar moment with the character of Seahawk, who is um, also very male-presenting, also seems to be wearing uh, makeup quite often, and is certainly very happy-looking, pretty fabulous. I mean, the, the degree, especially in this last season... I kept noticing the degree of grooming that w- that he had for his facial hair, for example, or just things of his look that were – the characters played as very traditionally male. And I remember when it, he first came on, I was a little like, okay, is this going to be the stand-in for like why – you know, I had a little bit of a worry of like is a show that's going to be so much about women power going to be – introduce this male figure who's a laughable male buffoon to be exactly that. And, and the fact that he – he is a laughable buffoon, but in a way that you're supposed to love him, not that he's a representation of toxic masculinity. Um, that that character was really important to me. And especially and, and just the fact that he is both clearly very heterosexual, or at least, I mean, very, <laughs> me, well, very queer. Yeah, I, 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 is he's anybody very on the show very heterosexual? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I said that immediately. I was like, no, that's not what I mean. I, he, he is very attracted to Mermista. Um, yeah. I think he's also very attracted to everything and everyone in the show. Um, <laughs> but just the, his presentation really spoke to me in a similar way. And I think um, uh, really hit me in a, in a kind of similar way. So I, lo- I love hearing you talk about that. Yeah. Seahawk, I get the feel like, obviously he's in love with Mermista, um, which I was like, really? When I first encountered him, because every he's 
he also seems to be interested in Bo, and also every single time he runs into a male character, they're clearly his ex. But, <laughs> you know, you date someone, you set their boat on fire. <laughs> but I love Seahawk. I love him so much, but th- that's the thing about the show. Like, it, I mean, I, I don't want to be sitting here saying like, oh, yes, and this is sufficient representation or this is enough. But like the show almost never puts a label on anyone or anything. Yeah. While making it still very clear that there is space within these characters and within this world for queerness and for non-traditional expressions of gender and sexuality and that it I think all of the characters are open to various readings and that seems to me to be a deliberate choice on the parts of the creators but not in a like well we don't want to put a label on it kind of way but in a we want everybody to be able to see themselves and so like I've seen people saying like is both a trans guy or is he cis and we don't know and it's not important that we know it's important that he is presented as this wonderful character who as you were saying like absolutely not toxic masculinity that he that he is who he is and that both of those readings are available for the people who need to see them yeah i I think it's a very good point oh go ahead becky I was just gonna say they they are they do so little labeling that in the fifth season I was actually very surprised that they had um, Natasha and Spinarella re- explicitly refer to themselves as like this is my wife we mm, are married yeah. because even among the pres- like the presumably heterosexual parents uh, uh, from Glimmers though does not have heterosexual <laughs> parents um, they I don't remember them saying like married as as the way and like you can assume that they are but it's not something that is really called out as here is our specific relationship um and i think that that's great because it leaves a lot of room but i'm also very glad that they did in the fifth season they were like yeah these two background characters who've been hanging around as minor characters since the beginning they're married and that's good (laughs) surprised that they were old enough because everybody looks 14 to me on this (laughs) show but it's fine yeah, I, I wondered about that, but I, I did like the way they called that out. Um, I will say, um, I don't know if you're quite of the same generational um, reference, but as someone who grew up with Salt and Peppa being a big part of my musical <laughs> life, I couldn't hear that character's name without hearing Spinderella spin it up one time. <laughs> like, um, I know it's Spinderella, not Spinderella, um, but that was hard. No, to- I had... I'm a little younger than you are, but I had the exact same reaction. Um, I don't, I don't know the music as well, but I definitely always refer to her as Spinderella by accident. Yeah, I. But Shoop is one of my karaoke jams. So there you go, there you go. I will say though, um, I, I definitely get your thing, especially because, um, and I, I think when we get into more of the characters, we'll, we'll do more of this. One of the things that I've, I've really felt a place where I really connected with some of the characters, and I know I've heard from a lot of others who felt the same is in regard to mental illness and neurodiversity. Um, And there again, there's no label that's given. Like, I don't think it's fair to say, you know, Entrapta is autistic or that some other character is this or that. Um, But I certainly know I've read a lot of great pieces from folks who are autistic saying how much they uh, identify with Entrapta. You know, I 
I myself am someone who has um, cluster, what's referred to as cluster two syndromes uh, symptoms, which is basically um, a, a, a mixture of uh, borderline and PTSD. And I completely identified with Katra in a lot of ways and have been reading a lot of great pieces in some of the support groups I'm in about how people who say like, you know, it's totally irresponsible to try to diagnose a real, another real person, let alone um, a, a character, but that we can see so many of those features in this character. Um, and, and the way that they're able to do that, I think very intentionally, like someone who really understands trauma was writing these characters and like thinking about how would this affect Katra, how would this affect Adora and stuff like that. But they do that without trying to make like put a label on it of one kind or another. Um, and I just think that's, that's such a good way to do representation because it doesn't say this person's in the same box as I am. It says, I see myself in this character. Yeah, absolutely. So, and let's, let's just talk more about, um, let's actually use that as kind of a, a chance to dive into some of the specific characters. Um, uh, I know Catcher going to want to talk about for quite a bit. Let's kind of start, let's start with actually just the, the hero of the show, Adora, Shira. Um, where, what, what, what's your kind of uh, feelings about her character and her character arc and the decisions she has to make? She is a good character and she should feel good. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, so I, I like Adora a lot. Um, and she, I think, I think she's a really interesting character because there is throughout a lot of the show an expectation of sacrifice, um, mm-hmm. including right up through the finale. Would it's always like Adora has to be as Shira, she has to be willing to sacrifice herself to save everyone else. Uh, and I think Jess actually had wanted to talk a little about that. Um, but I do think that the way the show presents that as not always being a good thing um, is something that I have rarely seen. Because uh, we are a culture that loves our stories about selfless heroes who are willing to die for their cause. And I think that that is an understandable and often good story and an important thing. But also saying, hey, maybe you don't have to give everything to your cause. Maybe it's okay if you want to survive. I think mm-hmm. that that is also a really important thing. And that Adora is a character where that is really explored uh, in ways that I have not often seen. Yeah, I I did want to talk about that. Um I think it's a really key part of her character. And I think it is something um, that we do expect of people, but it's something specifically that we expect of women Um, Mm -hmm. constantly sacrificing yourself, constantly giving everything you have. Um, And like, look, I'm not going to lie. I grew up in this culture too. And I don't think it would have fit the tone of this show, but I can see myself watching a show where the heroine does in fact uh basically burn up carrying the weight of first one's code or whatever to destroy uh this weapon and save everybody she loves and like being really moved by that and being like that was such a good and sad show um i mean i I feel like we we did see that show season five of buffy yeah no we definitely did we've seen it many times and i think it would have been it also would have been particularly inappropriate in this case because of the, like the increasingly obvious, and not that it wasn't obvious from the first episode, but the increasingly obvious love story between Adora and Catra. Like they, yeah. this was not a team that was going to kill off its queer characters. Like that was not going to happen. Um, yeah. And, and this, you know, love story between two women with, a dying sacrifice. Um, 
but the fact that like that Mara tells Adora that she's allowed to want things and she's more than what she can sacrifice for others. And speaking as somebody who did sacrifice everything for others, yeah. I'm meaning Mara, not myself. <laughs> um, and like the fact that there's one episode where all Bo is trying to do is get Adora to sleep because mm. she needs to. And the idea that like, not just that you're allowed to take the time for yourself, that you're allowed to sleep, that you're yeah. allowed to want things that are just for yourself and that are not uh, big epic things that will save everyone. Not only does the show say that Adora is allowed to have these things, but it makes it explicit that these are the things that give her strength. She is better at being Shira if she has gone to sleep. She yeah. is able to save the world because she loves her one person who she wants to be with and get to wear a nice outfit and go to a party with. Like those little <laughs> oh things, God. that like vision that she has. Oh my God. Like, and the fact that Catra's jacket matches Adora's dress, like, oh. Those things yeah. are her strength and not necessarily or not solely her willingness to die for everybody else. And that's a really important thing to tell girls and everybody. And that's why I brought up Buffy, actually, because the, for, and I'm, I admit someone who has, has watched Buffy quite a lot. I, I am in many ways a very big fan and also very aware of how poorly it's aged and, and being able to see a lot more of the problematic parts to it. And this honestly, I think is one of the biggest is, and I, it may well be that it's just a part of the cultural zeitgeist, but I, I don't think it happened, but I wouldn't be shocked if the writers in some extent were thinking a little bit about Buffy, because especially in this last season, um, especially the, all the discussion about uh, Adora not having wanted to become Shira, the idea, I, I think we get this more in the last two seasons but that, you know, this council had created the Shira to make some girl be that to fight what they saw as the great evil. And her, like there were so many things that gave me Buffy connections. Um, and so for her to, you know, so drastically not go the direction that Buffy had to go um, to me, it hit me as very significant because because he said it, it's not the traditional story is the sacrifice, um, especially of the queer character, especially of the woman character. Yeah, in my experience, um, millennial women who are writing stories with queer women in them almost always were very influenced <laughs> by Buffy. So I think yeah. that's a safe guess. <laughs> yeah, I, I can see that as being... And, and I can so much extent it's unfair if that's the all thing everyone compares to. But yeah, I can see that it, 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 it was a seminal work at the time. Um, just kind of continuing on that, I've always said that as someone who loves Buffy, I Buffy is my least favorite character in that because she feels a little bit like she doesn't have as much development as some of the others. And I, I really love that Adora feels much more of a real character to me. Um, I'm not even comparing it to Buffy because many others may see in, in her stuff that I didn't, but the fact that she is very much the hero, she's very much the thing the show is built around. And yet a lot of her flaws come out as well. I mean, no more than any others, but the fact that she, like you said, she has that desire to sacrifice herself that, um, you know, her and Katra obviously have this long history from childhood and a lot of it seems to be fears that Katra is projecting onto her 
but that there is some truth to it, you know, and, and, and in some of the ways that, that Adora treats Catra and, and, and the back and forth and stuff. And I, I really, I, I, she felt to me like a much more human character, um, than I often see from the sort of superheroine type role that you get, um, where it seems like the role, the point is to be like the most powerful character anyone can imagine without there being much, much there, there. Yeah, she's not an every girl. She is very specific. I don't think she's as complex as Catra or um, even Glimmer, but mm-hmm. certainly, like it, she's at, at the same level as like Bo. Yeah. Also, it's a small thing, but um, I, I know in the first the, 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 when the when it first came out, there was some controversy. Is a dumb word because mostly dumb people on the <laughs> internet being dumb. But there were people who were upset that she was wearing shorts under the skirt and her outfit wasn't as ridiculously sexualized. Um, but she still had the like, you know, incredibly long flowing hair and the short skirt. And I, I, I don't know if maybe I made more of it than it, it needed. But to me, it felt really significant that by the fifth season, when she kind of was reborn as Shira, now she was in, a, in pants and her hair was tied back. Um, it, it was a small detail, but it seemed like the kind of thing that like so much in the show was a very intentional part of that evolution of leaving behind the idea that she has to be the sexualized figure. Well, apparently her new Shira outfit uh, after the sword is broken um, is very specific to the best friend squad um, because her little headpiece matches the shape of Catra's and she's got a heart on her chest to match Bo's like heart boots. And I forget what the glimmer thing was, but like, Oh, that's fantastic. Her friendship was literally built into like her friendship with the three most important people to her was literally built into her magical manifestation of messianic power, which is <laughs> love. And we're de- we're gonna talk a little about the first ones later, but it's also like, hey, I've broken free of the thing that I was told that this Shira, but like that this persona is, or that it was supposed to be, as defined by these other people, and now it is the thing I make myself, uh, and that what she makes for herself is based on how much she loves people and the importance of those friendships. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. Also just like I go to a lot of comic book conventions for fun and also because it's part of my job and I see so many little girls dressed as Shira in mm-hmm. this modern costume and like I I do not care what any adult man crying about how Shira isn't sexy enough thinks at any time or ever, but especially when I see how joyful these little girls with their ratty wigs and enormous cardboard swords are like, they're having the best yeah. time. So anybody else can just go to hell. <laughs> I, I think it's so true. And I just, just one other kind of little detail like that, that I picked up on. Um, and this may be because I was watching a lot of it at between like midnight and 4am. And so I was kind of like focusing on small things. Um, the the opening song is obviously fantastic and and the visuals behind it are great. And maybe they've been doing this the whole time, but in the last season, every episode yes. they changed who was where and that as more characters started coming over to the princess's side, they started appearing on the princess like when it was all lined up instead of like with with the villains in the initial shots that had been. Um, yeah, and then they left, like, when Mermissa and Scorpia and them were captured, they, or, or chipped, they disappeared from that, like, final shot. And also the, um, the footage, footage, <laughs> you know, the <laughs> live action footage, um, the bit in the theme song where uh, Adora and Catra are fighting changed to 
uh, yeah. like them fighting and then them stopping and smiling at each other. And yeah, it, it, it's so good. Well, it, part of what got me thinking about it was I was watching it at one point with uh, one of my partners um, and we were thinking about the song and how at this point, both of our favorite character was cat for both of us. Our favorite characters were Katra and Scorpia. And the song is all about, we're going to win in the end. And we're sort of thinking like, what does that song mean since we love characters on both sides of this fight? Um, and I kind of love that they wound up bringing that home because by the end, they're all on the same side. Um, except the only person without it, uh, Redemption <laughs> or Act Prime. Okay, well, we keep dancing around how we have so much we want to say about Katra. So let's just go ahead and talk about Katra. Um, she's my favorite character. I get a sense that you guys also are really big fans. Um, what what what's, what's your take on Katra? Especially the fact that she gets... Um, a, a pretty crazy um, redemption arc of a kind uh, we haven't seen very often. Um, what? What? Yeah, let's let you talk about Catcher. What do you got to say? I have so much to say. Um, where? <laughs> I, I know to we're now even... going to start a five-part series on Catcher. <laughs> Are you sure? Because I could do that. I, I know. Um, so I think that Catra is the most complicated and interesting character on the show. Um, I also. I think her redemption arc is amazing. Um, as a viewer, uh, it is like watching the first season. It was really interesting to watch how she and Adora related to each other and how she became increasingly angry at Adora and then seeing her go deeper and deeper into a very dark and bad place and do a lot of things that are extremely bad uh, and like world shatteringly bad um, mm -hmm. and then see them bring her back from that is not only just a really good arc in and of itself and like an incredible feat of writing and characterization, but I also can't think of a single other female character who was allowed to have that kind of descent into being a, a genuine villain and doing genuinely bad things and then come back and be redeemed and not die. And like there may be other characters out there who I'm not familiar with or I'm not thinking of, but like seeing that in a female character is so unusual and rare and interesting and i loved it and i'm so glad that that they were able to do that yeah the, i i'm was trying to think of other female characters who have gone that dark and were redeemed without dying and the only one that came even close was raven from teen titans but like in the mm. comics because she doesn't go so dark in the cartoon and I haven't seen the live action show but she when she goes that dark it's because she's being controlled by other forces and the other thing about Catra is that she has full agency at all times all of her choices are hers whether they're good or bad which is also incredible like I mean she's a cat she's not going to do what anybody else tells her to do ever <laughs> yeah um and that that is always true about her. Um, I, we she's been compared a lot to Zuko from Avatar: The Last Airbender, who also had an incredible redemption arc. And I do think that they are similar types of characters in a lot of ways. Not that similar as people, but just enough alike that they would hate each other, oh, like yeah. so much. Um, but I mean, like it once Catra joined the best friend squad at the end in the second half of the last season, I was like, time for life changing field trips with Zuko. 
Um, <laughs> so true. With, but with both the, of the those moment when, go ahead. Is the moment when Natasha is naming everyone's weakness, and then his captain's <laughs> like, "You don't know mine," and then she just squirts her with a spray bottle. <laughs> so good. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like both both of those characters. Um, when you're introduced to them, you you know that these are antagonists who will be redeemed by the end. It's very clear, and yet what's interesting is not where will they end up, but how will they get there? And especially in Catra's case, like you you were saying, Becky, she shatters the world. She like we talked about this when I got to that episode because I. Uh, was a little bit behind and had to catch up on three seasons in six <laughs> days and it's fine and I'm not tired at all. But uh, when I got to the episode where she pulls the lever and opens the portal and I was like, how are they going to bring her back? And you just looked at me like, you hate spoilers, so stop looking at me. <laughs> but I really couldn't see how they would do it, but I knew they had to and they did it and they pulled it off and it was great. A couple of things there. I I can only think of one character who, uh, a female character who went that dark and got to come back. And it was a a storyline that was handled much clumsier. um, And it's Dark Willow, um, Mm. again, from Buffy. Um, And that one, I think, has all sorts of, I mean, A, it's, you know, the death of a queer character that sends her over the edge. And for her, it's sort of like she has got one major break that makes her do one terrible thing. And then she comes back as opposed to you know, a five season arc. So I, I don't put them in the same category, but that's the only one I can think of that's at all close. Um, but yeah, in, in terms of Katra, especially, um, I, I remember when I watched the princess prom, I, I knew nothing about this show going in. And so I didn't know what to expect. And I didn't know if Katra was going to become a real antagonist or if she was going to become, you know, part of the princess squad pretty early. And I was convinced that she was going to flip over during the princess prom. Um, and I remember being very surprised that like we ended season one with her still being an antagonist and thinking like, okay, I don't, I don't know what this show is supposed to be anymore. And I, I even didn't think she was definitely going to have a redemption. Um, and for me, I think what makes her redemption so powerful, she's a character I would describe as amoral instead of immoral, or at least, at least not even amoral. It's more, I mean, she has a very strong morality, but um, and Jessica, you you sent me a really good article about this that I'll put in the show notes. That does a really good job talking about this. Her morality is entirely focused around her people, you know, and it's not that she has mm-hmm. a like mustache twirly. I want to destroy the world. It's that for her, what matters is protecting her people, and and thus the incredible feeling of rejection she has. Um, and that whole scene where she's destroying the 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 world. She has this incredible confrontation with Adora about how Adora's going to stop it. And, and in her mind, this is Adora once again ruining things for Catra, once again, you know, taking away something Catra wanted, when the whole time is that the, mo- the one thing Catra most wants is Adora and is Adora's uh, affection and, and, and approval um, and, and, and just companionship um, and love. And there were so many scenes with Catra where you, you both have heard me talk about how my favorite character in any kind of um, media is the believable villain, the villain where I feel like if I was in their shoes, I would, I could understand why what they were doing would seem like the right thing, even if I could disagree with that. And I don't think I've ever had that more than I do with a character like Catra, than I do with Catra because just everything she does 
once you really understand the childhood she had and once you understand the way she has fixated Adora and fixated on the fact that everybody leaves her and everyone abandons her, um, it, it just made her so incredibly relatable and believable. Yeah, I think from like that is honestly one of the most amazing things about Catra is that even though she is doing genuinely terrible things and you would understand if people were not able to forgive her, she is never stops being relatable because everything she does is motivated by what we know about her and her relationship to Adora and her like her childhood and Basically, the way Adora is absolutely under her skin as somebody who she loves and wants to love her back, but also somebody she is forced into competition with and who wins. And so she feels like she needs to prove herself and she needs to be better than Adora or that she is better than Adora and nobody can like nobody else is recognizing it. And that constant frustration she has of both wanting to love Adora and to beat Adora. And then when Adora leaves, she really loses her, her only grounding, especially because Adora leaves and she is not then immediately hailed as successful and Shadow Weaver still is horrible to her and Hordak still doesn't care about her and, and all of that. And so she has to figure out what do I do with my my competitive my ambition has always been to be with Adora and to be better than Adora and now what do I do that both of those things are gone um and so I think that everything she does is so well motivated and so interesting and so believable that even though she is does terrible things she opens a portal she just almost destroys the world you still 100% empathize with her because even though it, these are not good choices and they are not choices that somebody should make, you absolutely get why she does it. You have had a friend like that who you cared about more than they cared about you. You have had a rival who you really wanted to be and never could. Like, it feels very human and relatable. And, like, I think they just did a stunningly good job with that. Yeah. Yeah, I think also, Matthew, the point that you brought up about um, Catra's morality and her, her moral framework being very it's very personal and it's mm-hmm. very much about like sort of an eye for an eye and loyalty, but a, a very weird kind of loyalty where like she's loyal to the idea of the horde and wants Adora to be loyal to her, but she's not actually loyal to like any particular anything else. Like she throws Entrapta and Scorpia under the bus. Uh, she, undermines shadow weaver she undermines hordak like if she sees an opportunity she will take it and it doesn't matter who she stabs in the back to get there because in her head she has stayed true to something and so she's right but i i also i think that the idea that like her morality is so it's so personal and it is so much about interpersonal relationships and she does not care about the world as a whole is a really interesting balance to Adora who think who sees ethics and her ethical framework is about the world as a whole. And we talked about like the idea of her sacrificing herself for the world and not so much for her interpersonal relationships. And it is only when those two things are balanced that a, they can have a happy ending like overall and defeat Horde prime, but also that they can be together. Um, But I also think that, like, Catra's big moment of redemption is when she saves Glimmer. 
And Mm -hmm. even that has nothing to do with saving the world. Glimmer tells her to do one good thing. And her choice for that one good thing is to give Adora back the best friend who replaced her. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Sorry. I was just overwhelmed by my feelings. Yeah. No, I'm, 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 it got dusty in here. Um, yeah and yeah i I mean the scene where glimmer and catra bond over their shared love of adora in that kind of like you know isn't it silly when adora does this kind of thing that scene was so beautiful and so heartbreaking because it was catra realizing she can connect with this other person on this kind of a level um but it's still being so centered around adora the whole time period where Glimmer and Catra are both prisoners, but only Glimmer is officially a prisoner. Yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> like, it's everything so about that. I was like, please give me 400 episodes of just the two of them. This is fascinating. Especially yeah. because yeah. Glimmer, and like, I know we're, we're still on the Catra train right now, but Glimmer has also made some choices at that yeah. point. Oh, that, yeah. I want to talk about those too. Um, yeah. For me, one of the the best Catra scenes or decisions that really drives home how you absolutely understand these decisions is I think in the third season when they've been in the Crimson Waste and she's actually been really victorious in the Crimson Waste and she has beat up all these goons and she has taken over and she's like found a place where she really fits in and where she is respected and she's getting all of the positive feedback she never has before and it's so clear that she likes it and she's so close to just deciding to forget about the horde and stay and then she finds out that shadow weaver has gone back to adora and she throws it all away because she can't walk away from that hate hatred slash love of adora and that need to get that validation that specifically adora has uh, and I Shadow Weaver too. Yeah, I, I think what's really important there is the triangulation of those three. It's that that because so much of the abuse that Catra goes through is Shadow Weaver constantly playing the two of them off against each other and saying like, "Catra, why can't you be more like Adora?" Yeah. So I I just I think that that's such a good and interesting scene, and it happens about halfway through the series, which uh, is really and it's really when Catra starts her sly well she's she's been an antagonist the whole time but it's when she starts making the worst decisions and the most uh untake backable decisions right and the it goes from oh yeah she's an antagonist to like no Katra, please no Katra, stop oh no honey like i i think that that was such a really well done moment and such a, a good pivotal turning point for her as you see and understand that she cannot walk away from this because she is so invested and she has to be because this was her childhood this was her abuser and her friend who sometimes saved her from abuse but sometimes not so much and that's a really complicated messy relationship i want to talk about my own kind of connection to to um Katra in a moment but first um you you folks made a uh, an interesting point that it that made me think of something from we were talking about before because we had this long conversation about sacrifice and how sacrifice is very often female coded um and that's an area where as Jess, like you were just saying Katra and Adora are 100% different like Katra does not have that sacrifice aspect to her at all um and and Becky you were before talking about like the ways in which Katra seems to break some like gender norms um 
am I reading too into it, too much into it to think that, that those two are connected in some way? Or is that just kind of like an interesting coincidence? Do you think? Um, I am not sure. I hadn't thought about it in those terms. Um, I do think it's interesting that it's Adora needs to learn to stop sacrificing herself and that she can have something for herself and want things. And Katra has to learn to be more sacrificing. She right. decides to, uh, she literally, she sacrifices herself for Glimmer. She has no sense that Adora will really come save her. She, you know, doesn't actually expect to survive this and she does it anyway. So she will have done the one good thing. And that's when Adora is like, nope, gotta, gotta go save the cat. Uh, yeah. Gotta go save Katra. And Glimmer is like, yeah, basically we do. Um, and I, I think that that is an interesting way that they are, like, inverse from each other, but I'm not sure about gender within that. Yeah, I mean, I think you have, um, if you look at Catra in the tradition of female villains, certainly you have many, many female villains who are not at all interested in sacrificing themselves mm -hmm. for anyone or anything. Um, and the character, I mean, we, we do have a female villain, really, in this show who does sacrifice herself. Um, yeah. And it's Shadow Weaver, who I also really want to talk about her um we definitely the, will. the other thing um about uh Catra's redemption arc that I think is really interesting and, and a lot of really all of the redemption arcs that we see um there's a lot of discourse online about redemption arcs and I think it was particularly sparked by the most recent Star Wars trilogy and Kylo Ren and like mm -hmm. Was Ben Solo redeemed? Did he deserve to be redeemed? What makes a redemption arc? Uh, he's no Zuko. Your fave could never, etc. Right. And a lot of, a lot of people, I've seen a lot of people arguing. You cannot be redeemed until you have suffered, and you have mm. to show a character suffering. Um, because we're not going to like them, we're not going to forgive them, we're not going to be on board with them until we've seen them suffering. Um, and then I saw a post, I, I mean, this was on Tumblr, I'm never going to be able to find it again. Um, <laughs> apologies to the person who wrote this, because I they made a great point that really made me rethink how I think about redemption arcs um, and suffering for characters. But they said, that's a Christian way of looking at things. That is an entirely Christian mm. mindset. Um, and they were speaking from a Jewish perspective, and I am also Jewish. Um, they said, essentially, uh, the idea that you need to suffer to be redeemed is a Christian idea. In Judaism, redemption comes from atonement. And atonement is not suffering. Atonement is making up for the things that you did it is doing right. good works to offset the bad works um and obviously like that reduces the idea to a binary there are many other religions i do not know enough about them to speak to how they engage with the idea of redemption um but the thing about zuko as like sort of the classic here is that we don't like him because he suffers, we like him because he works really hard to fix what he did wrong. Yeah. And with the characters who are redeemed in this show, like Catra, of course, but also to a lesser extent, Entrapta and Scorpia um, and Hordak uh, and even Shadow Weaver, 
we they're not redeemed by suffering. They're redeemed because they make better choices and because right. they try to do the right thing. And it is, in fact, suffering just makes them worse. Mm-hmm. Like the more you hurt Catra, the more she'll hurt you back. Yeah. And I, I'm really glad because when she was captured by Horde Prime, I was like, oh, I really hope that this doesn't go down that. Like I had that post from Tumblr in my mind and I was like, I do not want to see Catra suffer because it looked really bad for her. I was oh, like, yeah. I don't want to see her suffer at length so that she's allowed to be with Adora at the end. And that's not what the show did. And I'm so grateful that that's mm-hmm. not what the show did. And it allowed her to make good choices in a way that was still very much who she is. So I, I said at the beginning that I identified with her in part because of uh, mental perspective. And that, again, I don't want to diagnose anyone. Um, I think she she acts in ways that I, as a person with um, something very similar to borderline personality disorder, can very much relate to. And I, I'm going to link again. There have been some great pieces by people who also have borderline talking about why, all the ways in which they relate to Katra. And for me, that really started during the time when she's still part of, you know, Hordak and all of his plans, or if she's taken kind of over from him. And, but she's starting to realize the damage that she's done and she's feeling incredibly guilty about it. And she's caught in this downward sp- spiral of guilt leading to self-hate and self-hate leading to want to kind of lash out at others and that just leading to doing more terrible things. And, that lead- and so to me, that's such a perfect example of like, no, her her suffering is not in any way redemptive. Her suffering is the the, the bad cycle that has to be broken. Um, and it, it it connected for me there, and especially because what we then get pretty soon afterwards is some more scenes of summer flashback and some are just scenes with between her and Scorpia and things like that, where Catra seems to have a fundamental misunderstanding or a misreading of what's happening. You know, um, uh, Adora goes off to join the, um, the rebellion because she thinks the horde is wrong and she very much wants to Catra to join her, but Catra sees that as her being abandoned. And as children, um, you know, Adora makes this new friendship with Lonnie and wants Adora, wants Catra to be a part of that. And, and Catra sees that as her choosing one over the other. Um, and there's a number of times where Catra makes those kind of decisions that I think for many folks must be kind of, and, and I think Adora shows this kind of like hair pulling out frustrating of like, clearly that's not what's happening. Um, but the lens that she brings is one that, I mean, I can very much relate to that. I certainly know I brought that lens to a lot of things before I was able to kind of um, uh, go through treatment, and all that kind of thing. Um, and and that's that specific detail is one that I've heard a lot of other people comment on is really makes sense coming out of the background that she has. And and so for me, I think so much of her redemption arc is her being able to see those things again, um, you know, being able to see like, you know, that that glimmer can be upset at her, but still love her and still want to to help her. That that there can be recognition of the things she did bad, but it but it not be abandonment of her. It not be uh, about her in that kind of way. Um, and I think where I felt that the most is the fact that when she does come over to the princesses, it's not everything is now better. You actually have like a three or four episode arc of, you know, um, where. 
she's still really kind of prickly and she's still not sure she fits in and she's not sure that she's okay. It's not just uh, Adora came and rescued me and so now everything's better. But instead it's, um, you know, she's still figuring out where does she fit. And I feel like so much of that is her trying to, when I say the voices in her head, I don't mean that in a kind of a schizophrenic way. I mean it just in kind of like the self-doubt kind of idea of voices. She's having to really rewrite her mental scripts because she has had this mental script for so long of everyone will leave me, everyone will abandon me, everyone will always favor Adora, and Adora will always choose someone instead of me. And instead of it being an instantaneous thing, not like, okay, you're identified, you're cured, but that she really has to struggle to come back and to fight her way through that. And and so because of that, I just found that so relatable. And I think the only time I've ever seen that that particular kind of mental situation portrayed that way uh, in anything, TV, movies, etc. Yeah, I mean, I think when you're talking about the voice in her head, it's it's Shadow Weaver's voice. Yeah. Like, not to say, like, that's the only reason that Catra is, shall we say, does not always deal with things in a healthy manner, um, but she's a major part of it. Oh, yeah. And one of the things that I know that is not proof but but that is often a factor in people who have um borderline or issues like that um is having a parent who clearly favored another child over you um yeah. and so I, the, yeah it just it's every aspect of this show feels to me like they didn't say you know i read one article about this let me write a character about it they really did the research to say like okay let's envision who a character like entrapta is what kind of choices would she make with with catra with so many of these characters yeah, no, I, I think it's incredibly powerful. I also, one thing that I think is really interesting um, is in one of the first episodes, it might actually be the first episode, um, Adora has just realized that the Horde is bad and that Shadow Weaver is bad. And she tells Kat, she's like, Catra, she's been messing with our minds. And Catra's like, yeah, duh. That's like her whole <laughs> yeah. thing. Uh, right. Because Catra as the one who was not favored, as the one who has borne the brunt of so much abuse, has in some ways a clearer look at what's going on, but because of those same factors, does not have the pull towards a a good or bad morality the way Adora does. She doesn't say, oh, because of what Shadow Weaver, because the Horde is bad, that means I should go do something else that's better. She only has, because Adora is gone, I need to get Adora back. Right. I think she she just assumes that everything is bad all the time. Like she has no expectation that things could be good or better. And one thing I noticed uh, in the second half of the last season that was really painful to watch uh, in a good way was anytime anyone is even a little bit nice to Catra, she gets this really surprised look on her face. Yeah. It's this sad little kitty. Well, and, and what's beautiful about that is because that's actually healing because before when someone would do nice something, it wasn't surprise. It was immediate rejection. You know, Scorpio would be nice to her and Trapped would be nice to her. She just would, you know, Kyle or or, or um, one of my favorite characters, the lizard person whose name, Rogelio. Rogelio. <laughs> I love Rogelio so much. Um, but yeah, any, it used to be that anytime they're nice to her, she just rejects it. And so you're right. That's such a nice change when she starts to be surprised by it because she's allowing herself to just not immediately reject it. I love Kyle. <laughs> Sorry, I love... you mentioned him and I was like, oh, Kyle. 
One Can of we the just talk few things one? about the show that I didn't love was was the everybody being mean to Kyle all the time. It was like he's trying. But <laughs> they the give him a whole best. episode. Yeah, the episode well, where no, he they, rescues them. Oh, it's so good. Well, he he eventually they they that was eventually addressed, and I was very glad because it had been kind of a running gag that I hadn't loved, and then they were like, um, also they care about him, and he's good, and I was like, okay, good. Yeah. One of my favorite jokes is when. He was like, remember when you guys made Adora a cake with my ration bars? And they're like, that didn't happen. That was in the weird dream sequence. <laughs> I was like, how do they know that? It was so good. Um, but uh, yeah, let, let's talk about a character who gets a little more screen time. Uh, let's do. Um, let's talk about Shadow Weaver next, just because we're on this, on this redemption arc story. Um, uh, actually, one thing I want to just say, just back up, just an interesting point. Um, it's funny that with all the talk about redemption... We never actually mentioned the fact that in some ways the entire show is also Adora's redemption arc. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's because so much of that appears off screen. But anyway, yeah. So Shadow Weaver. Um, wh- 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 where do we go with that character? Man, uh, fuck Shadow Weaver. Fuck, sh- <laughs> fuck Shadow Weaver, but also, you know who she is a better version of? Snape. Like, yeah. fair. She's she she is what should have happened with Snape and didn't. Yeah. Um, you mean because she didn't have a huge crush on Catra's mother or father, and that's what motivated her the whole time. Uh, yeah. Well, also yes. Uh, but she she is the the teacher and authority figure who is also the abuser who is terrible and who dies and. It is a redemptive death, but she also, like, she doesn't seem to grapple that much with the morality of, like, is the Horde good? Is it bad? What, whatever. She just wants power, and she's pretty clear on that. But she does come to some kind of realization that, despite her own craving for power, which is the main thing that has driven her, she actually does want to have the world be saved, and specifically to have adora and catra be able to do it and she does sacrifice herself for both of them uh which it just strikes me as there's enough similarity there of like this is the bad to morally questionable character but what but but it felt it felt it worked a lot better for me than than the snape stuff did well we didn't get to the epilogue where we find out that adora and catra named their child shadow weaver hordak so (laughs) (laughs) Um, one thing that I thought was really interesting that really came out in the last season is the way that Shadow Weaver interacts with Castaspella, the greatest name (laughs) in the show. Um, I love that they didn't change any of the names. They were like, these are the characters' names. We're going to take it completely seriously. (laughs) Like, love it. Um, but it's really clear that she had a very similar dynamic with Micah and Castaspella that she does with Adora and Catra where she's like this is my favorite student who is good and clever and who I love and we'll talk about how great they are all the time and then there's the garbage one Mm -hmm. and like it's not just these two kids this is who she is as a person this is how she divides and conquers um and that this is like abuse is a pattern um, yeah. and I, I appreciate as a weird wor- word to use, like, I'm so glad she abused four people instead of two, but like, I, I appreciated that that was sort of illuminated for us as viewers. Um, and yeah, like I joked about the epilogue, but we, I am 
She gets her moment. It is deeply moving and probably fairly traumatic for Adora and Catrick to witness it. Like they're both sobbing because this is their mother, basically. Um, But there's not a moment where everybody's like, let's all remember how Shadow Weaver sacrificed everything to save. Like that's what she gets. And that's, that is what she has earned. She has not earned anything more. Please let there be a therapist somewhere on this planet because (laughs) Adora and Catra really need one. Yeah, I I think and and for me there's there's two things there. One is you know, we get her origin story is how she becomes from light light spinner to to shadow weaver and you know, it it's not really played out much, but I remember feeling like some sympathy for her and feeling like that maybe, you know, the idea that like the the princess council at that point isn't taking the threat seriously enough and you kind of so you understand where she makes her sort of heel turn. Um but getting to what you were saying about um that idea of redemption comes from uh, healing, you know, doing good, and and as I always understood, it, at least it's not it's not even just that it's about like do good things to make up for the bad. It's can you heal the actual brokenness that you caused, and and for me, the fact that she doesn't say a word to Adora at the very end, she speaks directly to Katra and says, "Katra, I am so very proud of you." Um, it, it felt like to me that some degree of her recognizing the damage that she did to Katra. Throughout the the lives of those two, um, yeah. The one thing I, I, you know, there was so much that this show gave us in terms of like wrapping up every storyline. I wish we had had more of a confrontation or some kind of acknowledgement of the past when Micah and Shadow Weaver re- reconnect. Um, that was that was the one sort of thing that I wished we'd gotten more of, and it may have been because they just they weren't ready to take Shadow Weaver's story there yet, and they wanted to have it more Catra. But I, I would have liked that story to get wrapped up a little more. Yeah, I feel like there were a few little plot lines involving Shadow Weaver that didn't really resolve, like the idea that she might be teaching Glimmer to use dark magic. Oh, I guess she wasn't, and it's fine? Okay. Like, that that didn't really get wrapped up. And, like, the, the show does not have a long runtime. Like, they're short episodes, 13 episodes a season. I get, like, I think they had to choose where they were going to put their attention. And I think they put it in the right places, but I do still have some things where I'm like, I wish that we that that, that had been tied up a little bit better. Yeah. Yeah. I also, so, so something that I think is really interesting about shadow weaver. So there's a moment when, when she and Casta are like figuring out that they have to go free the heart of Etheria and all the magic. And it acknowledges that she has, Basically, everything she's done in the show has been in pursuit of power because she's like, we can do this and then you have to be there to stop me if I try and take the power, which I thought was really interesting. One thing the show doesn't entirely address, but that I think is fascinating, is that Shadow Weaver is right about magic. Um, Because they they do touch, like she does say, like that what the council taught us was wrong. And through the whole thing, you find out like Etheria is this magical planet. but that the first ones had been, like, harnessing it and changing it, and all of the magic that they're using now is really based much more on what the first ones did. And she is the one who says, there is other magic here, there is more we can do, there is, we don't need to be bound by this, and it turns out that the first ones magic, or the the first ones messing around, had really hurt the magic, and they have to free it, which is what saves the day. I mean, and that and Shira and love, but, right. like... That's the tool that is used for saving the day, and that Shadow Weaver was right. Yeah. Shadow Weaver, who is not a 
good person, but a very interesting character in her pursuit of power came to some very correct conclusions about what was going on. Um, and I don't quite know what to do with that, but I do think it's really interesting. Well, yeah. I think if you want to say that the theme of season five and of maybe of the show overall is that you do not have to sacrifice yourself to be happy and yeah. that you are, you deserve happiness, then I think you can argue that the theme of season four is that the ends do not justify the means. Mm -hmm. um, and Shadow Weaver is a great example of that. Like, she's right, but everything she does in pursuit of that is wrong. And Glimmer is not wrong, but her actions are very wrong. Yeah. Um, and over and over again, when, I mean, and this is extremely common for media in general, especially for children's shows, we see characters taking shortcuts or trying to do something with a for a good outcome, but doing it in a way that is harmful. And the show is very clear that, nope, no, you can't do that. Like, it's, there are no shortcuts here. And it, it, to me, it's interesting because I think especially with Glimmer, both Glimmer and Shadow Weaver... It's not even just that they want to do the good thing and take a shortcut. It's and uh, Becky, we're gonna get kind of Star Wars here. It's that I think in, in both cases, what they're motivated more than anything else is by fear. You know, uh, Glimmer especially is so afraid of the the coming, you know, the the possible complete annihilation of everything, and that it's going to be her fault to some extent. That that's part of what drives her to say like, therefore, we should use the weapon. You know, we should use the thing. And Shadow Weaver is kind of the same way. I think it's such an interesting. Because, again, like, Glimmer never has anything but the purest of intentions. Maybe we can start talking about her now. You know, she never wants... I, mean, I Go ahead. I, I was just going to say, I, I think that Shadow Weaver is not as driven by fear as you do. I think she is motivated by wanting that power and sees Glimmer to some extent as a tool to get it. And there may also be some, some fear in there and some genuine, like, I want to help. But I see her as a character who is much more motivated by pursuit of power than by fear. That's yeah, good. I think it's a Palpatine Anakin thing. Mm -hmm. That can make that can make sense. That can make sense. I I think by the last season she's more motivated, not even by fear, but isn't like this is what we have to do to win. But you're right, also the power there for sure. Um, well, and that's that's why that moment with Casta where she acknowledges that she wants this kind of power, but that this is this is not the time. Uh, I think that's why that's such an interesting and good moment. One other thing I just want to say about uh, Shadow Weaver that I always really appreciated, the, the actress who voices her, um, Lorraine Toussaint, uh, a fantastic actress. She's been in a number of things. Um, she herself is a woman of color. She's black. And I loved that because the race of the character is not at all – I mean, I think she's supposed to be from some alien race. I have no idea what her actual race is. Um, and it, it, it just – I think, again, there's often the default of like, okay, well, if we don't know the race of a character, we'll have it done by a white character, by a white actor. Um, and so I just, I just loved that, uh, Lorraine Toussaint, who I thought was perfect for that role, got that voice. Yeah. You can tell that like there is thought put into not just diversity of what we can see in the drawings of the characters, but the actual cast. Yeah. It, it was not surprising to me, but I thought it was a, a powerful again symbol when I, I, I uh, the character of Double Trouble, who another one of my absolute favorites, and that character who is non-binary is voiced by an actor who is non-binary. Yeah, um, um, 
my understanding is that 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 was very important to them. And I also love Double Trouble so much. (laughs) Well, it it makes so much sense. Like once you encounter a character who's literally a shapeshifter and can bounce back and forth like that, like not that you have to be non-binary, but it sort of seems like, you know, the idea that every other shapeshifter hasn't been exploring this already is it it just felt there were so many things I loved about that character, but that, that part especially. Yeah, I also really appreciated that right from the get-go, like, everybody was using they pronoun, they, them pronouns for double trouble. And, like, there was, like, it was just instant. Nobody was ever confused about it. None of the, I mean, this is not the kind of show where that would happen, but the good guys never misgendered them, even though they were on the other side. They were all just like, no, it's double trouble. They use they, them pronouns. Yeah, and they're fabulous. completely taken for, it wasn't a big deal that had to be commented on in any way. No. Um, so let's start to get into Glimmer, because that was one we started to talk about. And 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 she is also, I think, a, a very interesting character, because in some ways, she becomes the Catra. Uh, I think, I think Becky, you made that point, that, that she becomes the new best friend, and has some of the same struggles of being in her shadow, and then also kind of coming into herself when she becomes the queen. Uh, what, what's your kind of take on her her journey and, and, and her role in the show? Oh, I think it was Jess who had said that. Oh, my um, apologies. But but was correct. <laughs> we're we're uh, kind of the same person, so it's fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, we're very similar. Um, <laughs> I so I love Glimmer, and I also think she is a really interesting and complicated character. Uh, I will say just up front, I had a really hard time with season four. Um, I thought it was well done, but her motivation and her fear and her anger come so much from a from grief and her mother's death. Um, which is something that I am super sensitive to in media uh, since my mother died some years ago. Um, so I actually had a really hard time watching season four and spent 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 a lot of it like unhappy and upset with Glimmer in ways that I don't think were fair to her character. Um, but I did think that letting a good guy, like a, a hero character who has never been anything but a heroic character do something that we all knew watching was going to be as wrong and as bad an idea as let's turn on the super weapon even though we know it's not gonna work uh and then letting all of season five be the consequences of that i thought was really interesting and i was really glad that there was uh sort of a a mini arc of Bo, who has been the most loyal and kindest and friendship-focused character on this show that is entirely about friendship, uh, letting him actually be angry and have to work through those feelings because she didn't listen to Adora, she didn't listen to Bo, she made the wrong choice, she cost everybody a lot, uh, and he gets to be mad about that. Um, And so I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, I also, I found parts of the season very frustrating and I, I found myself getting extremely frustrated with Glimmer um, not for the same personal reasons but I also honestly I, I thought that the writing was a, a little weak there um, the, the, it was a, it felt a little more contrived the the way well, that the friends fought to, to, I, to me I for me I think it was not The I think the problem for me was that they had the same fight four episodes in a row and they yeah. resolved it each time. And I think that's what made it feel contrived. It wasn't necessarily the choices that they made, but that 
it was like, no, but we already talked about this and we, we chilled out about, it. oh, we're doing it again. Okay. Because they still needed, it was like, they still needed to get Glimmer to that point, but they couldn't bear to have her on the outs with Adora and Bo for quite that long. So they kept making up and then she went right back to where she, like it, it, that, yeah, that, that makes, was what was the problem for me, that it was very repetitive. That makes a ton of sense. I think, I think that's a really good framing of it because I hadn't quite picked up on it but that makes total yeah that's what happened yeah and (laughs) and that does make it feel contrived because in real life people do have arguments over and over again but in fiction you generally especially like these characters are so good at growing and learning like grow and learn glimmer and and Um, it's funny because I I actually had the same frustration with a lot of um that part of the show um because of Catra because it felt to me like Catra was starting to get so close to rock bottom but they kept dragging it out and dragging it out and to the point, you know, and there, there's that devastating scene where Double Trouble um, just kind of lays out for Catra, like all the ways in which, you know, everything is falling yeah. apart for Catra. And I was like, OK, that's going to be the moment. That's going to be, you know, Catra's turn. And when season five started with Catra still at that same place, I was a little frustrated. And then when like two episodes in, she she makes her turn. I was like, OK, thank God. <laughs> like, we're not we're not going to keep doing that. But yeah. and I think you're right. I think in, in some ways, a lot of season four felt a little bit like they were one step away from where they wanted to go. And now they just had to kind of drag out the story a little more. Yeah. And speaking of which, real quick, but speaking of things that didn't really get resolved, um, I wanted to know more about Double Trouble working for Glimmer for a hot minute because that was like literally a blink and you missed it thing where he once he has gone back to the fright zone and done what he needs or i'm sorry they have gone back to the fright zone and done what they need to do they uh signal glimmer and glimmer's like cool and then that's never ever addressed again and double trouble is only in like the nightclub episode and a cameo shot in the finale after that right um which is another example of like things that glimmer is doing that nobody in her life would approve of but we don't like we don't get to see that part explored as much. And I, I mean, quite frankly, I just would have loved a scene between glimmer and double trouble where that's discussed because it would have been wildly entertaining. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think um, again, like these characters read as very young to me and I, I think it's really interesting to see Glimmer who has always been this very impulsive character who is not good at listening to other people suddenly have to deal with having the weight of ruling on her shoulders. Mm -hmm. And she, she kind of cracks a little under that. Um, I, I can forgive her for that choice. But it's, yeah, I just think it's really interesting that they took this character who is literally a sparkly, magical princess who's all like lavender and pink. And they're like, yeah, she turned on a super weapon that could wipe out a galaxy. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of great. Yeah, Glimmer, and we, we talked at one point about the age of the characters not really being clear. Glimmer especially was the one who always to me felt like, not even like, like she's kind of just right on that edge of pubescence, of puberty when yeah. the show was getting started. And especially like, and then the dynamic with Bo and her is never complete. They don't have a kiss, but I, I certainly should have walked away feeling like we're supposed to think that they were romantically connecting by the end of the show. 
Um, yeah, which was weird to me. But, yeah. I mean, mazel tov, I guess. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah, it's one of those things where I was like, well, that's fine. Like, what, I have no feelings about that. What, what, to me, the only reason why I brought it up is because I felt one of the most interesting moments of Glimmer of seeing, like, just how she's kind of, like, the youngest of the group is the Princess Prom episode where I, I forget mm-hmm. the details, but, like, Bo winds up going with or dancing with some other princess. And he go his perfume is date. Right. And and Glimmer is very jealous, but in a way that, like, I feel like even she says, like, she doesn't, it's not clear, like, is this a romantic jealousy? Is this a friend jealousy? Like, what's going on there? Um, that, that read to me very much as, like, I'm having all these feelings and I don't understand what they are yet because I'm just starting to have them. Um, just in terms of, like, where she is age-wise with all the others. Yeah, I mean, in terms of age, um, I remember when season one came out, people were asking... Noelle Stevenson, who's the the creator of the show. Um, And it was, as I recall, her answer was like, I know why you're asking because there there was an undercurrent of people wanting to prove that Scorpio was too old for Catra so that they could vilify her and and remain true to Catradora as a ship, which like... Scorpia is a cinnamon roll. Um, But as I recall, Noelle's answer was somewhere along the lines of, they are all about the same age and it's old enough. Like whatever you feel, (laughs) whatever age you feel like they are, that's the age they are. Nobody's a creep. Well, and one thing I love so much about the show in general, actually, is that I'm almost certain this was entirely intentional. A lot of times these kind of shows, especially like with princess characters, the romantic relationship is privileged so much above every other. And I really appreciate that while there is obviously romance in the show, and especially between two of our main characters, that friendship, the friendship bonds are also very important. And I, I will go to my grave thinking that Scorpia doesn't have any romantic feelings towards Catra. That is very much a friendship feeling, but that, 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 that the, like I sort of get annoyed at the idea that like for it to be as important as it was to Scorpia, it has to be romantic. Um, like to me, I I really like that as a kind of a like, no, this is this is a very deep friendship, you know, affection and love. It doesn't have to be romance for it to be that important. Yeah, I mean, I I think she was into Catra, but oh, that's I, fine too. I I think I think the show it doesn't really set a clear boundary between those things because, like you yeah. said, it's not there's no hierarchy. Um, it I mean, Perfuma talks a lot about the her power of friendship towards the end of the show and what a good friend Scorpia is they're, they're girlfriends like again Noel <laughs> Stevenson is like they are girlfriends now they are they are together they are an item um and the you know what exactly the dynamic is by the end of the show between Glimmer and Bo is not totally clear what exactly the dynamic is between Mermis and Seahawk is not totally clear until the end of the show. Like the only, I mean, I think Adora and Catra is, is pretty obvious from the get go, but the only one that they really like put a label on is Natasha and Spinnerella. But I think it's part and parcel of the shows. Like we don't need to label this character's, gender or sexuality or, or anything about their presentation what's important is who they are and how they feel yeah and it it to me 
the nebulous nature of those relationships is partially because the show has a very young target audience and partially I'm sure because there is, you know, network pushback or whatever you call it when it's, you know, Netflix and not broadcast TV. Um, but also partially to allow for everybody to see what they need to see in it. Yeah. Um, and I do, I mean, this is super obvious, but I, I do think like the, it is amazing and important that they did that. And also amazing and important that they did just let Katra and Adora be gay. Yes. Like yeah. very much they so. kissed, which honestly did surprise me. I had expected because there was so little defining of relationships and because it is a show that is marketed to children and having same-sex relationships in children's media is still a whole thing although not as difficult as it used to be clearly um i had expected it to be i love you like we save each other we end up you know we hug and i had expected it to be left ambiguous and the fact that it wasn't and that they kissed like i screamed yeah. Uh, and then I had to pause the show and take a minute, and then I had to go, like, explode at my sister about how overwhelmed I was. Um, so I, I think that they, they do a lot right with the relationships. Um, I don't, we were led into this by talking about Glimmer, uh, and this was not at all related <laughs> to her, but I, I just, I mean, we hadn't talked about that much. I don't think it needs to be talked about that much because it's kind of the big thing that everyone knows is a big thing, but it's such a big thing. <laughs> It really is, and I, I, I will not to say a little bit more about it. I, I feel like there's definitely a romantic implication among a, n- a number of the other pairings, but to me, I feel like if we'd had, you know, um, Scorpia and Perfum- and Perfuma had kissed, and Mermista and Seahawk had kissed, and Bo and Glimmer, like if we'd seen all that, I felt like it almost would have cheapened Adora and Catra a little bit. The fact that they're the only ones who explicitly crossed that line, I mean, other than the couple we've already established, um, to me, it made that much more powerful. Yeah, um, I think like you have to you have to maintain that centrality. Um, although we were talking about how the um, the opening credits change uh, almost every episode in season five to reflect like who is and is not a good guy or you know chipped or not chipped. Um, by the end, uh, Natasha and Spinnerella are just making out in the yeah. end credits. Like <laughs> so it's good. just fantastic. But I, I so I just looked it up. Legend of Korra, the final episode, aired in December of 2014. So that's five and a half years ago, which is not a very long time. And I remember when that episode People were ended. Spoilers! I haven't Korra. finished that show yet. Are you Are you kidding? Because <laughs> I, 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 it's okay. You know how it ends, though, right? I, I have literally no idea, but it's fine. Go ahead and tell me. It's... <laughs> it ends with so the show begins with Korra at the heart of a love triangle between two brothers. Right. And it ends with her holding hands with one of the brothers' ex-girlfriend. Okay, that's fantastic. And I like that a lot. It is made it's fabulous. It's made very very clear in like the ongoing comics and stuff because, you know, there's other media that ties into it that they are absolutely a couple, no question, 100%. Yeah. Um that but they couldn't I mean, kiss. It was, they 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 couldn't they kiss. They weren't allowed. Ugh. It was shocking. That ending was shocking. Like people, like there, there are video compilations. You can go on YouTube and you can see compilations of people weeping as they respond, like just watching that last episode and the shock and the joy on their faces. And 
we are not that far off, and this show had ten thousand lesbians in it. Like, <laughs> really? I, I, I mean, I, I said again, over not to put labels on anybody, but but it did. Oh, yeah. like, like on. Honestly, on my Tumblr, I had literally uh, posted, wow, so Korasami uh, walked so that Katradora could run. Because, like, exactly! So good. It, it really, it felt like it was something that had been built to by media for a while, but the fact that they could now just literally have the two girls kiss. Like, oh. Yeah. I'm so happy. The two girls kiss the other couple who, they are married, and they kiss in the credits, and all these other couples, and all these other very obviously queer characters like the what was that one uh cartoon a few years ago maybe around the same time as Cora where like it was like the loud family or something where like one of the kids in the main family had a friend who had two dads and it was like hugely scandalous and wasn't there a disney channel show that like got yeah. canceled because yeah. somebody uh, had two good, moms good luck charlie on the disney ch- channel i believe got canceled after airing an episode where the kindergartner had a classmate who had two moms uh like and and that would have been around 2011 maybe that's that is a a guess but sometime sometime of that era so like and, and I, this is this is a quick evolution, but it's it's amazing. And I will say, I am someone who, because of my connections to the religious world, I I I see a lot of what goes out from the religious right uh, kind of things because I like to know like what they're talking about. And you know, maybe it's just because they're so worried about how masks are the work of the devil. But there's not been a peep about this show and about this kiss, which I think is a really you know I, I I'm hoping that's a sign of a little bit more progress. I have no idea, but um. One thing I'll say about that also, um, and I, I, I say this as someone who um, I have been in and out of queer communities myself, and my own identity there is, it has been kind of very uh, uh, more efficient shifting, and so I'm not, I'm not trying to claim my own role in a community. But something I've seen both from my own, my own participation, but also just from a lot of my study, this gets talked about a lot, is the idea that, that one of often the things that happens in queer communities is that the line of friendship and relationship becomes a lot more blurred, um, and that there often is like... When you see things about like, you know, value, queer values that the straight world should adopt, one I often see is like, love your friends and like tell your friends they love and, and honor friendship as well as romantic relationships. And given how much the Noelle Stevenson has has really said that the queer flavor of this show was very intentional, just kind of going back to the conversation we're having about the line of friendship and, and relationship, it's occurring to me now that that's probably also something that she was very intentional about, about wanting that to be a very blurred line. Yeah, it's. I mean, I, I'm straight. I don't want to say this from a perspective. I don't want to be speaking outside of my lane here, but to me watching the show, this is not just a show that has a central romantic relationship between two female characters. This is a queer show. Absolutely in every single aspect of it, top to bottom, inside and out, like everything about it is joyously queer mm-hmm. and it's so it's so beautiful <laughs> to see that yep <laughs> they save the world with rainbows bursting ever like literally shira kisses her girlfriend and then waves her sword at everything and hits it with rainbows yeah like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah it, it, it definitely felt that way to me um 
kind of transitioning to a couple other characters, and this is kind of a redemption thing, but but to me it flows out of the power of friend- friendship. Um, it turns out not to be the world-saving moment that at first I thought it was, but I had a beautiful moment where it seemed like the thing that was going to stop the evil plan was Entrapta's friendship with Hordak. And, and that yeah. just so blew me away as like, you know, at first we see Entrapta as just kind of quirky and ridiculous, but the more that that character grows and goes on and you start to see her just like, cause she seems so, it's so weird that she's willing to be a supporter of so much terribleness, but she's so happy and joyous. She just like, you know, she builds these friendships with these murder robots and with Scorpia <laughs> and with Hordak even. And, I don't think we get real a real like redemption arc to Hordak, but he gets that one moment, which um, I mentioned I was going to bring up Star Wars, him basically turning on the other Hordak and dropping him down this like bottomless pit in a space. <laughs> oh, incredibly Star Wars! It was inc- yeah, yeah, no, that was. But but I don't think you can watch that and not be like, bye, Palpatine. Okay, I'm glad I was not the only one. No, but not the only one. Oh my gosh! But but it, it just. And again, it, it, it didn't wind up saving everything, but it, it made a difference. For me, That the idea that that friendship was the thing that had so much power, it just, it was like, okay, I get it. Friendship matters. I love this so much. Well, there's, there's sort of an idea in the show, and it's one that I, I really love when I see in media, um, which is that all anybody needs is a chance. Yeah. Um, like all you need to do is show somebody that there's another way, that there's a better way that, that they can be valued and that there is good and that there is friendship. Like is a lot of these characters, I mean, some characters really struggle to get over there. Catra obviously being the major one, but a lot of these characters, it's a very, like they just like take wrong Hordak out of the thing a little bit early by accident. And they're like, Oh, here's how you wink. And he's like, I'm a good guy now. Like, <laughs> It's and this is he's literally been grown in a vat to be evil, but the second he's shown another way to be, like it's the characters all still have agency, and characters like Katra and uh regular Hordak still have to decide that that is what they are going to do, right? But it's it's the the smallest seed is necessary sometimes to allow that to to flower as perfuma would probably say well and and speaking of perfuma um that they there's a whole thing where it seems like they're setting up for what's a pretty typical like level up and badass whatever where they tell her like you have to stop being afraid of hurting your friends so that you can be more powerful and she out of hand and correctly rejects that as like, but my friendship and how much I care about my friends is my power. Yeah. That's what makes me a powerful person. That's what makes me a good person. That's why I do the things I do. And she never has to let go of that and prioritize something above friendship and her faith in friendship and her belief that people who are friends matter and that that relationship is so important is part of uh, when uh, Scorpia has been chipped and she has that moment where she doesn't kill them. It's very explicit that that's why, and it's because of the strength of that friendship and how and how Perfuma's belief that friendship is the most important thing is correct. Yeah, I I think that's really true, and I I love the fact that we all these characters get redemption arcs, especially because 
Uh, Jess, when you were on uh, uh, talking about the Punisher, one thing we got we talked about, especially in the last season, as being kind of frustrated with, is the idea of showing trauma in a, a villain's past to explain their villainy, but in a way that kind of feels like you know if you have trauma, you're going to become evil. You know, um, and what I kind of love is that here, every character who has become a villain because of trauma in their past also gets to have a redemption. Um, you know, I mean, and not that I feel like Hordax is deserved, but like even Hordak, you know, we learn like had, you know, had this really awful relationship with Big Brother, whatever. Um, and, and in each case, it felt like the fact that like, and the only person who we never know his trauma, we never know why he became a villain, is also the one who doesn't ever get a redemption. It's Hordak Prime. Um, and, and, and that to me, it was one more thing that felt, I, I think was intentional and felt so striking of breaking away from the idea of, You've had this trauma and that explains it, but it's still okay for us all to hate you because you're an evil villain. Yeah. I mean, when you think of like villains, first of all, can I just say that I love that you drew an analogy between She-Ra and the Punisher? (laughs) Specifically, we were talking about Perfuma and you were like, this reminds me of the Punisher. And that's why this is an excellent podcast. (laughs) Thank you very Um, much. But uh, I mean, when you think of like, like the villains are called the horde and i know the full name is the evil horde and i do still love that bit in like the first or second episode we're both like everyone everyone you're from Um, the fright zone (laughs) but like the other word that i think of with horde is faceless like there's this idea that it's just like this uh undifferentiated evil mass and as soon as anybody gets individuality the show no longer presents them as somebody to be hated like once somebody is a person then they get to be treated like a person yeah um and uh i think it it's fair to say that a huge part of horde prime's villainy is his lack of respect for individuality um Obviously, like, he wants to have a hive mind. He has cloned himself innumerable times. He wants to remake the universe in his image. And when a body is no longer useful to him, he'll just move into the next one. Right. Um, And I think that's a big part of why he cannot be redeemed. Because he is, I mean, like, obviously he's one character, but, like, he's trying really hard not to be, if that makes sense. (laughs) Yeah, he, I definitely got both Borg and Ultron feelings from him. Yes. Um, yeah. And and I, I like the point you made because kind of I I, I was <laughs> the segue was intended to be a little bit to talk about Hordak and um Entrapta specifically, it, it, because part of what it, it I'm I, I, I what I, the connection I just made is what you're saying about how we get to see that you know each of these people gets to be an individual. It seems like Entrapta's superpower is that she can see that in the people no one else can. You know, she can even see that in yeah. Hordak. She can see it in the bot that becomes Emily, uh, which the scene of like them re reuniting and hugging, Ugh. like I've never had a, like a box on wheels that make me tear up like that, but it was so good. And when, when Hord- wrong Hordak is afraid to pet Emily and then does. <laughs> so good. Well, and the thing that Entrapta says to Hordak that is so meaningful to him and that she brings back and which like made me tear up when she said it the second time is your imperfections make you beautiful. Yeah. Like that's such a 
beautiful idea and it's so much part and parcel of the show's ethos in general and it's so much a part of who entrapped it is as a person and would be such a revolutionary concept to somebody like Hordak who is literally a clone right and who's thrown out because he is an imperfect clone yeah the the line about your imperfections make me beautiful um your imperfections make me beautiful there are so many lines in the show especially in like the last four episodes that sort of felt like that line sounds like something that like a child therapist would have like framed in their in their office and yet none of them feel like you know slogans they all feel very real and earned even if they're yeah. like this could be you know like i said just in like a self help book so easily um what so what what is kind of your feeling like entrapped to me is one of the most interesting because i feel like she she's she really is the most balanced between her time as like a hero or a villain and and to some extent, I feel like she, in part because she never cares about the morality of either one. It's just about who are my friends and, and who's going to let me play with the toys. Uh, wh- where do you kind of see her character? Uh, I see her as somebody who grows to underst- who who grows in her morality. Um, because she really, in the first couple of seasons, doesn't worry about morality, like, at all. Um, she is interested in tech and that's pretty much all she's interested in. And she likes her friendships. I mean, it's not as if they are, you know, things she is completely divorced from or ignoring, but she is driven mostly by her, her desire to learn more about technology. And through working with Hordak and seeing him as a partner and then, uh, coming back to the other princesses and, realizing like that they care about her and that she is trying she is now taking the tech that is the thing she has always cared about the most and trying to use that as a way to help them and bond with them and thus save the day uh, i think shows growth in her understanding of of what's important uh and her own moral decisions which i i think is again a really good thing mm-hmm. yeah i i agree i don't think that entrapped a in season one or two would have tried to stop Catra from opening the portal. I think she would have been curious and would have been like, Oh, let's find out what happens because she is very reckless with her experimentation when we first meet her. And she is the one who wants to hack the planet. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And she, she sort of learns about consequences um, without, she learns about consequences, but she, not in a way that fundamentally changes who she is because I, I would be very uncomfortable with the show ever suggesting that she is wrong the way she is. And they don't right. Like, I mean, and she's impossible to be mad at. Like you can be mad at glimmer. You can be mad at capture, but with entrapped, you're like, yeah, <laughs> like she, nothing that she does is ever motivated by she makes the wrong choices sometimes, but it's never out of spite or pettiness or some of the more negative emotions that can sometimes compel the other characters. There was a panel at WISCON a couple of years ago. I I don't remember if either of you were in it with me, 
Um, and a person I, I've been fr- frantically Googling, trying to remember the name of this person and, and or find it. And I can't find it. But if I do, I'll definitely put it in the show notes. But Was this the Shira panel? Yeah. Um, I was on it. Oh, okay. Well, then you may remember who said this because there was one person who said that they really related to Entrapta uh, in part. And, and this was the first person who had heard um, talk about Entrapta as someone who uh, someone who's autistic can can possibly relate to. And she was very, the person was very clear of saying, like, it's not that, like, Entrapta speaks for all people with autism, but that they, as an autistic person, could see a lot of themselves in Entrapta. And one of the things that they said was that, that they often feel like they have to remind themselves to think about right and wrong. Because it just, mm-hmm. the way their brain chemistry works, like, that's just often not a part of their thinking. And that they really identified with, with Entrapta because that's what they saw Entrapta doing. It's not that Entrapta is making moral choices. It's just that they they kind of forget that that's a thing you're supposed to care about. Um, yeah. I think it was um, Alexandra Aaron who yeah, was, it was saying that. That is correct. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, and I just thought that, that blew me away. And I was something, and I had meant, I got Alexandra's contact information, have meant to get them on uh, uh, the podcast to talk about that, have never had a chance. Hopefully we'll, st- we'll still, and thank you for reminding me again of their name. Um, but yeah, I think that, that, it, 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 it what you were saying reminded me of that that idea of like you know just not thinking about morality in that way yeah i mean this is like it's a silly joke but when um natasha is talking about everybody's weaknesses which is such a <laughs> batman thing i was like i can't believe natasha went full batman um i loved that though oh my god it was so good when she just takes out the scissors and cuts bow's bowstring yes it was so good um, but she just like throws a random piece of tech across the room and Entrapta goes running off and she's like, tech. Yeah. Uh, Mermista, fire. Frosta, also fire. Perfuma, your inability to hurt your friends and fire. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I also think that's why it's powerful in the episode where, um, the, they're trying to get closer to the signal and everybody gets really mad at Entrapta and she... Finally, like she says explicitly, and I, I'm glad she did. She's like, I, I'm bad at friends, I'm bad at people, but I'm good at tech. And so I thought I could use tech as a way to help my friends. Yeah. Um, and I thought that it was really nice that they had brought her from being somebody who had been, who had not been thinking about friendships in that way uh, when they try to go save her from the fright zone. And she's like, actually, there's tech here, and I think I'm going to stay. And she clearly bears them no ill will but does not think about the ramifications of what she's doing on her friends and having that evolve into somebody who is still not great at that kind of friendship but who now understands or recognizes this is what I care about and so I'm going to use my skill to help instead of I only care about this skill that I have yeah and I I just thought it was a nice a nice evolution and I really liked it because it's in some ways in that regard, she makes a similar choice to Katra, but from such a different place. Katra is coming from anger and malice and spite and, and really deep hurt. And as you said, it, you know, in, in, because Katra feels like, you know, Adora chose someone else. Entrapta also feels like her friends abandoned her, but she's not mad at all about it. And if it you know, she's sort of just like, well, I'm not good at friends, but now Hordak and Emily and, and Scorpio are my friends. So that's who I want to stay with. Um, and in some ways, it felt like such – it's the same decision but from such a different place that Catra, than Catra comes from. And I, it, it just really was – it was touching to me especially because it made them all kind of wonder, like, how were we treating Entrapta and did we leave her behind or, or that kind of thing? Yeah. 
I also really love, um, sort of related to that, how Scorpia is only able to see that Catra does not treat her well when she sees what Catra has done to Entrapta, which I think is, you know, very much a relatable thing. Like we don't, we let people do things to us that we would never let them do to our friends. Yeah. Um, and I, I like that Catra and Scorpia ended in, up in a good place. Like, obviously we all love Catra. Like I'm not like throw in the garbage. She was mean to Scorpia, but like, I am glad that Scorpia was able to see that she did not deserve to be treated like that. And that she, you know, was able to have this relationship by the end of the show with someone who is just like inexhaustibly positive. Like, it just it just makes me so happy. Yeah. Perfume is going to be so nice to her. And it also just reminds me of, I don't know if we're going to go deep dive on this character as well, though we really could. The fact that Scorpia is one of the, like, you know, quote unquote bad guys. And is just such this incredible ball of sunshine and, and happiness and just wanting to be everyone's friend. She is an absolute angel and she is drawn to look like a scary monster. Like she is enormous and she has pincers and she is the sweetest little cupcake. Like I just love her to pieces. Yeah. She is, she's wonderful. And it's also, it's friendship that gets her the redemption as well. Cause she is an antagonist for the first three and a half seasons. Uh, and she helps the horde and she wants to defeat the princesses. Uh, but when she realizes that Catra is a bad friend, which that like that that's her moment is she says to Catra, you're a bad friend. Yeah, oh, so and, good. Yeah. Uh, but she realizes Catra is a bad friend, but Entrapta was a good friend and someone she cares about. And so she goes to the princesses and says, this is my friend. She's also your friend. Help me save her. And because the princesses are willing to help her and embrace her for who she is and treat her with respect and as a friend, she is then uh, redeemed and is just a, a good guy from then on. Yeah. She's still, you yeah. know, she cares about Catra, but she's not going to help the Horde anymore. I, I, I'm also... Uh, good. Scorpia's so good, I love her. <laughs> I'm really fascinated by the history of her family as collaborators, and they don't do much with that but it's so interesting yeah i i i you know i i i've joked i, th I think in, uh, we, we talked about it on a podcast and i'm the person who wants to like read the full print you know i want to read the full sokovia accords um and I, like uh, <laughs> i want to like know uh on the a podcast about the clone wars like i want to read the, the 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 constitution of the republic and the jedi and all that and in the same way like i'm so curious about the power structure of this world where like these princesses not only have these superpowers, but also are like this ruling body and, and what in the world's going on. Um, yeah. You, you could, if you told me you were doing a spinoff show about like, you know, the, 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 that first generation of like, you know, Scorpia's parents and Micah and all that, like I'd, I'd be so in. Yeah. I mean, I think the show has a really rich lore behind it. Um, I mean, there's just like the idea that there's like elemental princesses and they're just like regular degular princesses. Like, Natas is a princess, but she doesn't, and she has magic powers, but she doesn't have a rune stone and she doesn't need to be connected to the heart of Etheria for it to work. Um, I was actually like a little confused as to why Entrapta wasn't required for that because she was the princess of Trill, but she doesn't have a rune stone. And like, there, it's, it's, it's kind of convoluted. Mm -hmm. Um, 
but I think um, I know Becky wanted to talk about the first ones, and yes. I think that we sort of th- led into. I think they are with- the source of some of that. <laughs> yes. So, so I one thing I wasn't clear on, but I think is that there were people, there was intelligent life, human, human-ish, uh, on Etheria before the first ones. And then the first ones colonized Etheria. I think that's what happened, but they aren't super clear, so it may have just been that the first ones discovered Etheria, which had, you know, native flora and fauna, but no, no intelligent human-esque life. Um, but I well, think I there wonder, was. Because all the first ones, well, the only human first one that we see is Mara and the all of the AIs are presumably modeled after what the first ones looked like so I wonder if like all of the basically animal like anthropomorphic animal characters might have been the first Ethereans but I don't know yeah I was wondering well also because I mean Adora is a first one who was brought to Etheria, and what I got from that was the implication that the people who are now on Etheria are not first ones. So it's it's very unclear. But yeah. the way so I, I read think it, that again, they're the descendants of the first ones, and they still, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Well, that's that's what I thought, but I, I felt like I felt like there was some I don't remember when it was, but that they had said explicitly that Adora had to be brought in because she was a first one. And the implication I got from that was that that meant that the people still on Etheria weren't. But again, unclear. So I could have completely misunderstood or misread that. Um, but yeah, yeah, I guess I, it could go either way. Because, like, could, theoretically, could Bo wield the sword? Well, he's not a first one, but is that because he's too many generations removed from the first ones? Or is it because he is fundamentally a different species? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> um, but yeah, so so there was Etheria, which was this planet which had magic and, I think, human-esque life. And they were colonized by the First Ones. Uh, and the First Ones messed with the planet and tried to turn it into a weapon. And they also took what was its inherent power uh, and harnessed it and changed it. And so like what what I thought was really interesting is that they have, like... At some point, Adora learns that Shira existed before the first ones came to Etheria. Shira was Etherian, and then the first ones created the sword, and that took control of Shira, and it made Shira into part of their weapon. Right. Um, and all of this, it turns out, was like the first ones were at war with Horde Prime and were defeated, uh, and Mara, Mara pulled them into the Despondos, and they're in this other dimension until they end up getting shoved back. Um, but the characters on the show don't really look at first ones as colonizers. They look at them more as ancestors, and they don't know how their own culture was changed radically. Uh, they don't, they don't know that, you know, the planet was turned into a machine and a weapon. Uh, and they eventually, like, the weapon, it turns out, is bad pretty much no matter what. And they have to not just defeat Horde Prime, they also have to free Etheria of this First One's influence in order to save Etheria. Uh, which I, I thought was really interesting, but I also, that's 
I, I assume that some of the princesses are important and some are not, or are <laughs> elemental and some are not, because the first one said, oh, these are the ones we care about and that's how we're going to do it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I just think it's a really interesting thing in the background of the show that it is kind of anti-colonial, which is good, but it also doesn't ever really get into that very much. I, I really like that point, especially in... in- Becky, you're saying, and then and just the one thing you said about sort of the non-human characters. I was what when I um my partner Abby uh joined me for at least part of my three season binge over the last thirty six hours. Um, and and one of the things that that she asked at one point or she was pointing out was that all of the anthropomorphic animal characters, um, both Catra and and Scorpia, but then also like um y- you know uh Rogelio and the the goat person and so many of the people we meet in the Crimson Wastes. Um, there are no anthropomorphic people, like anthropomorphic humanoid animals uh, among the princesses or among the good guys. They're all either the kind of like nefarious types in the Crimson Wastes or they're straight up villains, part of the horde. Um, and, and so now I am wondering if like, you know, the, that, 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 that part of what the first ones did or part that's at some point in the past, there was some like the, the, the humans taking power over the the the, anthrop- the anthropomorphized and uh, animal types, um, you know, I have no idea. This is all head head canon, but it but it it that distinction is so firm that it feels like it must be intentional. And I wonder how it ties into the history with the first ones or any of that. Well, there are um, there are definitely good guys or at least neutral guys who are anthropomorphic animals because a lot of the villagers are either they're animal people and then. Uh, there's the village that's like all mushroom people right. in the last season, and I love the mushroom people so much. There's like that little guy with the mustache. I love him. It's my favorite character in the show. Yeah. Um, yeah. At first, but, I couldn't tell it was hats, and I was like, nope, nope. That's just they have a mushroom for a head. Nope, okay. they're just mushrooms. I love them. I love them so much. And you're right. They're, um, they're neutral, but I think nowhere in the power structure, none of the princesses, nowhere no, in the princesses' families at all. They're not in the ruling class. Um, the other thing that's I think noteworthy is. Uh, Glimmer's mother, Queen Angela, she's she's not human. Um, and Glimmer says specifically, she's describing her parentage, and she says, "I'm the daughter of a sorcerer," and she says something like an ethereal an being. being. Yeah. yeah, yeah. There's some, like something with the word angel in it. Yeah, she's not she's not human, and we don't see anybody else like Queen Angela. So, like, we don't know what she is either. Um. So yeah, I, I also would be very interested to know which uh, populations are and are not indigenous to Etheria and how they have changed because of the first ones or other whatever else may have changed them. Because there's also the question of like, they're on a planet with magic, so... Who knows what effect that has on evolution? Right. Yeah, that's a good point, too. Because, I mean, Swiftwind used to just be a horse. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And I loved that Swiftwind, when he turns into Swiftwind, is immediately like, okay, now it's time to go free all the horses. (laughs) Also, side note, I love that Swiftwind, like... Adora, because she is She-Ra, and like it's uh, because this was the case in the original show, but also because this is the kind of show that this is, she has to have a beautiful flying unicorn with rainbow wings as her noble steed, but he is useless. <laughs> <laughs> like, 
occasionally shows up and is annoying and then he leaves and he does like maybe two things that are helpful ever but and he's so sassy and campy in such hilarious but like not fitting the mold way and like he's so excited for his boys night out with seahawk and (laughs) bow such a good night (laughs) ah swiftwind so we, we've gone for quite a while. Um, there's a number of other characters we could talk about. I'm happy to talk about this all night, but I'm sure that you have other, you know, things you need to be doing with your lives. Um, uh, are there other things that we want to uh, touch on before we start to wrap up? I love Mermista so much. Like, I don't have anything deep to say about her. I just, I just love her every time. She- oh, I do. Ha- it's not deep, but the Mer Mysteries episode is the best <laughs> so episode, good. and it's incredible. And I loved every second of it. Well, and- um, I I also love Mermista. Um, I love that she gets to become a leader by the end uh, until she gets chipped. But like, I thought that was a really cool moment of character growth. Um, and she also gets I- a dapper suit. Yep. She also gets a dapper suit. Um. And I think, like, because it is a show which, again, we said it's all ages, but it is marketed largely towards children, They there's a lot about war that they can't do or show, and they sort of talk around it a lot. Uh, and I thought that they found a really good balance with that, with Selenius, um, or Mista's mm-hmm. kingdom, being occupied and destroyed, and her having an extreme... Or she is shattered by that. Um, and they can't super focus on it because again it's for children but they do make that a major turning point yeah. uh, for her as a character and I, I thought that they found a really good balance with making that serious while also still keeping it appropriate for the target audience yeah I, I think that's a really good point and I'll, I'll just say um, I love Mermista in part because she's voiced by um, Vela Lavelle who um, has had a couple of small things but um, have either of you seen Crazy Ex-Girlfriend? Yes! Oh, she's so good on Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. Yeah, and, and Crazy Ex-Girlfriend is, I, I, I mean, I don't think it's in any way an intentional connection, but for me they're very connected because that's the only other show that I've seen be so real about borderline-type mental illness issues, and she is phenomenal in it. And and honestly, I didn't know if I wanted to watch Shira, and hearing that she was going to be one of the stars of it was a big part of why I wanted to watch Shira. So yeah, Mermista, fantastic character. Um, Miss Chance with not having her sing, though. Oh yeah, good point. Um, cause we do get a little, we get the horse singing, which is, a you know, questionable. Um, <laughs> I think, um, Seahawk sings once or twice. Um, Seahawk has a couple of numbers and Scorpia has her big, uh, like in the, oh, the underwater nightclub yeah. episode. Yeah. When they were like, uh, when she's dancing with Perfuma and Perfuma's like, well, what do you like to do? And she goes, oh, I like to sing. And I was like, she's going to end up on that stage by accident. And then a single spotlight's going to come on and she's going to be like, oh no, and she's going to have to sing a song. And I already know what's going to happen, but I'm so excited about it because that's my favorite thing. And it's exactly what happened. And I, I do wish that the songs on the show were better, Yeah, <laughs> but the singers are very good. Like Seahawk is voiced by uh, Jordan Fisher, who I love. Um, we saw him in um, Hamilton a few years ago. He took over as um, uh, Lawrence and Philip, and he like I always thought. No offense to Anthony Ramos, who's also wonderful, but I always thought that was kind of like a nothing character. He stole every scene he was in. He was like 
You could not look away from him. He is- he, he's a literal, he's a Disney prince. We walked out of that like, oh, that's what a Disney prince looks and sounds like in real life. <laughs> and then wasn't he, he was a Disney prince in something, wasn't he? Oh, he, he does one of the songs that's in like the closing credits of Moana. Oh yeah, um, but and- that's, that's a Maui song, which is, Maui and is then not was a Disney he- prince. Was he in the Little Mermaid live or one of the other live musicals? I think like, he was musicals? in something live. Or Grease or something? Yes, he was in Grease live and he sang um, my favorite song that I can't remember the name of. Um, Magic Changes. Oh, yes. And, Such a good one. Uh, he, he was in one of the Disney sing-alongs they've been doing since the pandemic started and he sang Under the Sea and it was really cute. Anyway, I love him and I support him in everything that he does. That's fantastic. I definitely <laughs> want to see that. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think about other characters or other kind of big plot lines we pointed out. Um, uh, Becky, you were just talking about how Mermista kind of touches on some of the the darker topics that you think are are hard for a kids show to get into. Um, what? Well, yeah, I mean, it's also so it's there's a war going on through this entire show, but they can't really show people being killed. So the only character who actually dies that i recall is glimmer's mom right um and there's an implication like in the first few seasons glimmer's dad and then he comes back but but yeah so i think it's it's something the show it clearly wants to show some of the impact of war and you can see it on some of the psyche of the characters and the conditions that they were raised in but it also never goes to a really grim, dark place, which would be completely tonally inappropriate for the show yeah. and for the target audience. Well, it, um, what I was going to say about that is, ages first on the grim, dark, I think that's part of why I got frustrated as well by the repeating, repeating Adora Glimmer fights, because it felt more grim, dark than the show was supposed to be. Um, but but the main point I was going to make is, I think one of the things that I, and I especially saw this watching like seasons three, four, five in order it feels almost kind of like the Harry Potter books that it, it kind of ages up and like, like Hordak himself is scary, but is also kind of ridiculous and com- like not comedic, but he's like, he pratfalls. And I mean that, that Hordak um, prime felt much scarier and, and the dimensions of, of control that Hordak prime has over the world. Everything about season five felt much more intense and much scarier in a way that I was like, oh, okay. This feels like you kind of feel like the kids in the audience are ready for something a little bit more. Yeah, I mean, I think they did break, like, we almost, we barely see Hordak in season one. The real central villain is Shadow Weaver, and Hordak is only shown to us in glimpses. And I feel like he's slowly unveiled to us, and then he loses that threatening aspect and sort of gets replaced with, Horde Prime as the truly scary villain, and then of course he, he just kind of becomes, I mean, it's wrong Hordak, but like, <laughs> full on slapstick. But another thing that I noticed and it, I think it was um, that article that I sent you from Tor.com or something similar, um, Adora looks the same throughout the show, but She-Ra looks significantly older in season five than she does in season one, which I hadn't realized until I saw screenshots of the two seasons side by side. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Glimmer uh, gets a a glow up as well. The haircut, yeah. 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 And Catra. Catra's look evolved significantly over the course of the season, but she always looks amazing. Well, I remember... Again, literal fashion goals, like... 
Well, and there was a point in season one with Catra where I remember uh, I was watching it with my, my fiance Mary, and she said, like, she was kind of curious, like, how much of that is Catra wearing an outfit and how much of that is just the way Catra looks? Um, and I kind of had, like, similar feelings about, like, Scorpia and stuff, and I liked being able to see Catra out of the Force Captain uniform and she's going to see, okay, so that's what, that's what her hair looks like, actually. That's what her, that's what she looks like outside of the uniform. Yeah, like we learn in this season that her cheeks are fuzzy, which we didn't know because her hair was long before. But like I was on um, the uh, another Wiscon panel that I was on last year was the best superpowers for banging. And if I recall correctly, the question of whether Catra is furry all over came up. Yes. And I guess now we know. Um, I'm going to take a quick break and say that I was planning on marketing this to uh, uh, kids who might really like uh, the show. So forgive me, Jess, if I edit that moment out. But Go for it. <laughs> Otherwise, totally understandable. Um, but yeah, I, I, I'll probably leave it in because I, I think it was an interesting moment, to be sure. Um, um, yeah, so I, I think that's kind of um, – I'm trying to rack my brain if there's any kind of like one or two other last hits we wanted to make on the show. Um, I did like just in general that um, – Season three, especially, cuts way back on the characters we get. Um, Seahawk doesn't appear at all. The horse doesn't appear at all. And I really liked that season four and especially season five, they really let some of the other characters really come forward. Like, Perfuma, I think, was mostly a sort of like, she gets to say one or two cool lines and you get to have a fun power until season five, but she really gets to come into her own. Um, what's the little girl who's the ice queen? What's it? Frosta? Frosta. Yeah. She mm-hmm. gets to have a little bit more character development. Like, I... I really liked that it it was always an ensemble show to some extent, but it really becomes much more of one in season five, in part because they, they take some of the main characters off the board for a while. Yeah. Well, cool. Okay. Well, um, thank you guys both for being a part of this. Um, uh, you guys both um, put out a heck of a lot of other great content. For those who are first hearing you, I'd love for them to be able to find it. Um, uh, Becky, first, where where can people find um, some of your content, especially um, some of your novels? <laughs> Uh, my 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 content. Uh, my books uh, are Bound by Blood and Sand and the sequel Freed by Flame and Storm um, from Delacorte Press. They came out a few years ago. Uh, and you can find me on Twitter as at Allreb, A-L-L-R-E-B. Um, and occasionally uh, on Instagram, uh, I would say also tinyletter.com slash Allreb. I send like a, an S- personal essay type thing about once a month. Um, yeah, but mostly, mostly on Twitter. Come say hi. Awesome. Uh, and Jess, what about you? I am also on Twitter at Jess Plummer. Um, I have a podcast about Superman movies called Flights and Tights, and I do a lot of my writing at bookriot.com. So you can listen to me yelling about superheroes over there (laughs) if you wanted more traditional superhero yelling yeah um, I, I love both of your podcasts and i think um uh if you're, you're you're first discovering them now uh definitely check out both of those podcasts and and, and their writings um uh uh, uh Be- oh shoot i didn't actually mention my podcast okay yeah i was like, i thought you had but I, I i was thinking about yeah but why don't you talk about your podcast as well uh, so my podcast is what my sister and I have a podcast called Rachel and Becky Judge Things, uh, where we watch things that we have heard about from the internet and let you know whether the internet is right or wrong about them. Uh, and we actually, when She-Ra first came out, we did an episode about She-Ra. Uh, and my sister, who does not like superheroes, actually really liked it and it was much better than she expected. I obviously loved it and watched every season 
several times as soon as it came out. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. So Rachel and Becky Judge Things, uh, which is at rachelandbeckyjudgethings.com. Awesome. Awesome. Well, great. And I, I'm sure I'm going to have many more reasons to get both of you on. But thank you so much for being a part of this. I'm glad we finally got to get all three of us together. Um, and for folks who, um, uh, I, I'm hoping that some, uh, some of your own fans have followed us over here. So for anyone who hasn't, uh, this is your first time hearing a superhero ethics podcast. Um, please be, uh, I also do a podcast called the star Wars universe podcast, which goes pretty deep on star Wars products. Um, we're currently in the middle of a discussion of both the TV show, the Mandalorian and the TV show, the clone wars, just to further confuse people on the clone wars at the moment. We're doing uh, every week, we're reviewing a couple of episodes, going through the whole show, but I've also now started uh, a discussion just on the last season. And every day this week and, and into next week, we're going to be releasing an episode uh, on, on that because um, we're a little bit crazy, but it's been a lot of fun and a great show. Um, you can also find me on the uh, Bingers Assemble podcast network, doing a whole discussion of Altered Carbon, uh, as well as um, all of these podcasts are part of the Stranded Panda podcast network, which is kind of really just about a whole bunch of different podcasts about uh, geek media and, and by people who, who love geek media and love to go deep on it. So please check out all those podcasts, all those links, uh, but especially and most importantly, uh, the links to the stuff that Becky and Jess does. Um, uh, I, I love their podcasts uh, and writings. Becky, I have not yet gotten to your novel, but it's on a list of things for me to try and get through this year. Um, <laughs> it's I know, so good. Uh, Jacob, who I know uh, was our, our former uh, host, has raved about it. So I'm really looking forward to trying to read both of those books. Um so you can find if you want to um, be part of the conversation. Uh, I think all three of us would love to hear more of what you have to say. Tell us what you thought of Shira. What were your favorite moments? What were things you didn't like? What were things that we talked about today that you either agree with or, or want to have your say on? You can find us on Facebook, on Twitter, and email, all at Superhero Ethics. Uh, and the link to all of those will be in the show notes. So uh, on behalf of myself, uh, thank you to both of you. Thank you to all of you fans. And have a great day. 